Hey everybody, welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast. I'm Adam Levenberg. This week I'll be talking about my thoughts on films that I've watched this summer, including Spy, Mission Impossible 5, Ant-Man, The Gift, American Ultra, Inside Out, and Ex Machina. But before I get to those, let me talk a little bit about something I'm excited about. A short film that I had the honor of being the script consultant on it has just wrapped. It wrapped yesterday. And I am so proud of both the writer and the work that I put into this with the writer because, you know, he hired me initially. He was ready to film. He had a director. He had a producer who was handling a lot of the logistics. He's starring in this 10-page short film that he wrote. And he just wanted to come to me to get some final feedback before they put this thing before the cameras. And this thing was an absolute fucking mess. It was a disaster in the best sense of the word, though, because there was something there. You know, this is a short film about two people in a hotel room. I'm not going to say any more about it. But, you know, the draft that came to me was just tangled. The dialogue was tangled. The approach in terms of the power dynamic between these two characters and how the power dynamic flips back and forth was not something that was really present inside of this first draft. It was hinted at. Um, but, you know, we had to spend a lot of time and multiple passes really figuring out what this power dynamic is, who's in control. And then every piece of dialogue that follows becomes relevant to who's controlling the situation at that point in time. And also because the location is so limited, you know, two people in a room, the result of that setup is that there's a lot of backstory. And that backstory is a mystery. It's hidden from the viewer. Um, and the result of that is that we had spent a lot of time untangling that and, you know, really working out where the clues are planted, how this complicated backstory unfolds, and where the characters find out what. And the greatest thing is, at the end of this process, the writer ended up with a script that he was confident in. It's 11 pages long, and it sings. It works. There's not a question on anything that's happening. We even were able to find a theme. You know, it took us about six drafts before we even started talking about the theme because there were so many other problems. And, you know, what I loved about this is it's often very difficult. You know, when somebody brings me a full screenplay, which by the way, go to officialscreenwriting.com, I do full script consultations for writers. It's a more complicated process because you're dealing with the writer and their writing and also you're dealing with their concept of what they're trying to do. You're dealing with genre. You're dealing with a story that often has not been perfectly laid out before they decided to write it. And the result is that there's just so much to tackle in those script consultations. Whereas in a short film consultation, you can really go by every line of dialogue, make sure that it works. The short film consultation becomes much more precise and it's easier to deal with everything and to untangle all of the ideas that the writer is bringing to the table. And what I loved about this process, in addition, is that the writer 
knew what he was doing. He just needed to be able to talk it out, bounce it around, you know, back and forth and go through a couple different drafts before we were able to uncover the theme. It was there all along. And then we talked about the four different points in this 11 pages where the theme comes into dialogue and where that happens and what is said. And the result is a short film that I'm certain is going to hit festivals. It's going to be awesome. And, you know, I'm really excited about it. All right, so let's talk about what I've been watching. Wet Hot American Summer, the series. It's called First Day of Camp. It's on Netflix. I was a huge fan of Wet Hot American Summer. I highly recommend that you watch the film first. It's available on Netflix. And then check out the series. My biggest issue with the series is that I had read that Bradley Cooper only did about one day of filming on it. And I just get really distracted watching how they try to film that because the result is that they put him into scenes where they can kind of cut to him for a reaction, but he's not really there. And then they're often shooting over his shoulder, which, you know, is a stunt double because he's not there. And I think that because Wet Hot American Summer is so far outside the box, um, and if you've seen it, you know what I mean. If you watch it, it'll be clear what I mean by that. Because the format of it is so bizarre and the approach is so strange, it fits for no other reason than they're not afraid to completely break rules. Um, It did not work for me in Arrested Development. That kind of thing was really distracting. I knew in so many cases, wow, these two characters are not in the same room. And it drove me nuts with Arrested Development here. It was just a little bit distracting. I forget if I talked about Spy in an earlier podcast, but I will leave it at this. My biggest problem with it was that I really wanted to see Melissa McCarthy being James Bond, and the film didn't deliver because very early on, they do some terrible stunt double work. I'm going to jump to talk about Ex Machina for one second, and I'm actually going to come back to it. But in Ex Machina, there is a humanoid robot And they put an actress's face on the robot, but it's sort of like metal legs, metal arms, metal butt, and then you have this actress's face. For the first 40 minutes, you see this robot walking around with the human face that has been digitally put on top of it, and then she puts on clothes, and they save millions of dollars in digital effects work by doing that. But what worked so beautifully about it was by the time that they clothe the character so that they can just film the actress behaving like a robot, by then you've bought into it because they've shown through the visual effects that they could create the illusion that this robot has a human face. With Spy, the worst stunt double work and the worst creative camera work that is done to show Melissa McCarthy as an action hero, meaning her hand-to-hand combat, um, her movement, all that stuff, the worst stuff is in the first half hour. They make some decisions in terms of masking Uh, Melissa McCarthy or using stunt doubles that I found completely atrocious. And it's what scares me about Ghostbusters because you have the same director doing it. And I don't understand why they didn't say, you know, and again, this is a director who's really interested in comedy and he delivers the comedy and it's funny, but I would have liked the director to ask himself, how do I sell this? How do I sell Melissa McCarthy doing this hand to hand combat, this action, this movement? 
you know, it's not an easy thing to do, but that's the magic of Hollywood. You can make it work. With Spy, they did not make it work. And in the worst example of it, very early on, Melissa McCarthy says, hey, I want to go out into the field. I'm a CIA agent. I might work in the basement and I might sit on a computer all day, but I'm a CIA agent. You need a CIA agent. Let me go be a CIA agent. And her boss goes and reviews footage from her training. And you're basically looking at surveillance footage where it's Melissa McCarthy's voice over a stunt double you know, sort of rolling around a room, shooting things, and it's just not believable. To put that out there at the beginning destroys the possibility that they're going to create the illusion that you're watching Melissa McCarthy as uh, an action hero. And I was really disappointed in that. Um, I would have liked them to aim higher, and Ex Machina perfectly represents the approach that they should have taken and didn't. All right, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. I fucking loved it. I loved that movie. I am such a huge Chris McQuarrie fan. Chris McQuarrie was the Oscar-winning screenwriter of The Usual Suspects, and over the last several years, he's basically been working with Tom Cruise. He wrote and directed Jack Reacher. Uh, He wrote the production drafts for Edge of Tomorrow, and now he's back with Mission Impossible 5, and it's fucking awesome. There's some great tension sequences. They don't really deal with character stuff in this script. I can't even remember. I presume that his wife was killed off in Mission Impossible 4 because they never mention her in this one and he's got a new love interest. So if you haven't seen Mission Impossible 5, the reason that I'm mentioning this is watch for all the setup and payoff around chess. And if I ever see the film again, that's what I'm going to be watching for. Moving on to Ant-Man. Ant-Man is my favorite Marvel movie ever. And the reason for that is because there's very little action and fighting. This is a comedy heist movie. And, you know, it was initially supposed to be directed by Edgar Wright, who also wrote the initial drafts of it. Edgar Wright did Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. He is a brilliant, funny, quirky, bizarre talent and... His stamp is all over this movie. Um, They brought in another director, Peyton Reed, who did Bring It On. What else did Peyton Reed do? He did The Breakup with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn, which is a cool movie if you haven't seen it. But here, there's just very little action and fighting because they wanted to make Ant-Man for a price. And I realized that I just don't love action and fighting. Um, I would rather watch characters interacting. I believe that tension often is a lot more entertaining than watching people punching each other. And I think that the effect of movies like The Raid and what you see in Netflix's Daredevil series is that they're so great now at this fighting stunt work. And there's so much expertise being brought onto these productions that they fully take advantage of it. And the result is minutes and minutes and minutes of people fighting. And it just bores the shit out of me. Whereas with Ant-Man, that stuff is very, very limited. The other thing that I loved, loved, loved about this movie is that Michael Douglas is there and he's there a lot. Now, I have no idea what Robert Redford's participation or contract looked like for Captain America 2, but often when you have these big, huge, formerly A++ list superstars who are now getting on in age and still looking to work, they have very restrictive contracts. They are basically walled in in terms of this is how many days they will work, this is how many hours per day they will work, and they sort of get a version of the superstar treat. Whereas 
And the result of that can be that you're often filming from the back of a stunt double's head. They're not in any scenes that they don't absolutely have to be in. And what I love so much about Ant-Man is there's just tons and tons of Michael Douglas. He was there. He was hanging out. I never got the sense that they were trying to film around him. And he seemed to be having a really good time. He's so funny in the movie. And, you know, I just was sort of able to appreciate that because there's a reason that some of these people are superstars. And Michael Douglas is one of them. Michael Douglas had like a 20 or 25 year run as a an A-plus list actor who did Oscar quality work. And, you know, he continues that with Ant-Man and it was a real treat. All right. Um, the Gift. This is a twist on the person from Hell Thriller. It is written and directed by Joel Egerton, who stars in the film also alongside Rebecca Hall and Jason Bateman. And it's a throwback to a person from Hell movie like Fatal Attraction, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. In this case, a couple moves into a new house in Los Angeles. They've come from Chicago. And, you know, while they're at Urban Home, which, by the way, is just the worst store on the planet. Urban Home is ridiculous. It's basically a super, super cheap Walmart version of uh, Crate and Barrel, I guess you could say. And the furniture is like falling apart in the store. If you've never been inside, it's just kind of funny to walk around and look at the quality of this stuff because it's just absolute garbage. But anyway, so they're at Urban Home. They're buying some pillows and buying a couch. And they run into an old friend of Jason Bateman's from, you know, middle school. And, you know, they say, oh, let's exchange numbers. And they do. And then all of a sudden there's a gift on their front porch. It's a wine bottle. They never called him. They never said, hey, this is where we live. And they sort of overlook that. But of course, Joel Egerton's character has some really dark intentions. We don't quite know what they are. That's one of the brilliant things about this movie. You're never quite sure what the deal is with this guy because they keep so much of the backstory a secret and they keep so much of him a secret. You know, every time he's asked a question, he evades it. And the result is that you can't quite wrap your head around what it is that he might be trying to do. It lets your mind go wild with paranoia. As a director, he does something really smart, which is the house is mainly made of glass it's just floor-to-ceiling windows and the result of that is that it's just absolutely fucking terrifying because you're never sure what's going to be coming at them they feel so vulnerable the 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 hero and his wife or i'm sorry that the wife is actually the hero i guess you could say that's something that's not really clear until the end how everything's going to break down and shake out and you know there's a lot to watch there um as a director he's really throwing down in terms of just the way that he stages things and the way that his shots operate. I enjoyed it just simply for that, let alone some of the terrific work that uh, he did as an actor um, and as a writer. I'm not even going to talk. I have an issue with the ending, but I'm just going to leave that. I'm not going to talk about it. Let me see what else. Oh, there was one great moment. It happens very early on, so I'm not giving anything away. It sort of represents a save the cat moment, I guess, um, where they're looking at the house for the first time and Jason Bateman steps outside and him and his wife are separated by the pane of glass and he uses his breath 
to create condensation on the glass. And then he makes a little heart. Uh, and it's just a really sweet moment. And it's a purely visual moment. I really like that. And I forget, maybe they have a kiss between the glass. But screenplays are sort of about creating imagery like that. And that's the kind of imagery that can often end up getting a writer a directing gig. Because they're showing on the page, hey, I am full with lots and lots of visual ideas in order to represent uh, what is happening and how the characters are feeling. After watching The Gift, I had planned on theater hopping to Trainwreck, but American Ultra was starting and I ended up walking into it. And th the reason that I did was because I knew nothing about American Ultra other than it was written by Max Landis, who did some great work with Chronicle. I believe he wrote the Frankenstein movie that's happening now with Daniel Radcliffe. And American Ultra is sort of a moldy oldie, I guess you could call it, because it's it's an older script of his. It's a script that got him a ton of attention as a writer. And often these scripts that get attention, make it onto the blacklist, they're better writing samples than blueprints for movies. There's a quirkiness that comes across through the concept and through the inventiveness that happens that just doesn't necessarily sustain a feature film as much as it sustains itself on the page. And I walked out after an hour of American Ultra, not because it's terrible, it's actually not terrible, um, it's just not very good and the reason that it's not very good is because it's not funny enough. This is a movie that requires laughs every minute or two and the laughs here are so few and far between. I don't care how much you like the movie. I was in a half full theater there was plenty of opportunities for people to laugh. I laughed once um, out loud. You know, it worked when they tried to be funny. They just didn't try to be funny enough. And a movie like this really requires that. It's a spy with amnesia movie. And let me just draw your attention to how many fucking spy with amnesia movies there have been. Uh, there was, let's see, The Long Kiss Goodnight. There was The Born Identity. There was Total Recall. You know, this is well-worn territory. The twist on it here is that Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart are stoners. And he's very unmotivated, but deep in his past that he does not remember, he was given some really insane fighting capacity. And, uh, you know, that sort of comes to the surface and he's got to grapple with, hey, I'm just a stoner who works in a convenience store and I'm also a very, very well-trained assassin. You know, the visuals were really cool. Uh, the, the first couple minutes I thought like, wow, that maybe we're going for like a natural born killers kind of thing. It's, it's so stylistic and the director shows off so much. But again, the laughs are very few and far between so much. So I was like, you know what? I'd rather go home and go to bed. All right. Inside Out is probably one of the greatest movies you'll ever see in terms of screenwriting. That's almost all I want to say about it. You know, the, the writer was a big producer. She was Jodie Foster's producing partner. She went back to school. So even as a producer with years and years of work inside the industry and tons of credits as a feature film producer, she felt that she needed, uh, you know, a refresher um, and to build her talents up as a screenwriter. And my fucking God, did she do that? Inside Out is like a screenwriting thesis script. It's using all of the tools that they teach you in film school and putting them back on the page. Um, and the, the result is a fascinating film that, you, you know, again, let's let's not forget that it's also a Pixar movie. And the fact it's a Pixar movie means that you are watching the ideas of 
probably dozens of highly, highly talented people contributing their ideas into the screenplay uh, and their jokes and their visuals and all that kind of stuff. So we can't lay it all at the feet of the writer, who, by the way, is almost definitely going to win the Oscar for Best Screenplay. Um, But, man, did she do an awesome job with it. I don't even want to talk about it anymore because it's so complicated. Like, a movie like Inside Out is almost... You know, I could talk about it. We could probably go through, talk about the beats, but there's so much happening and so many different characters that, you know, it's sort of beyond even my capacity to to really break it all down. Finally, I'll talk about Ex Machina in terms of a screenplay. Now, I'm sure most of you haven't seen it. I may go back and watch this again. I may do some notes on it. I just read a Tarantino quote that I'm I'm paraphrasing. He was talking about the movie It Follows, uh, which I wrote about a little bit on my website, officialscreenwriting.com. Uh, but he said about It Follows, it's a movie that's so good it makes you mad because it's not great. And that's what Ex Machina is. I thought it was amazing. Uh, you can rent it now uh, through Amazon. I'm sure it'll be on Netflix soon. And... It is a very, very cool movie about a Mark, think Mark Zuckerberg or think one of the guys who started Google, who's super rich. He basically built a house in the middle of nowhere and he has created a robot, which he believes is the first artificial intelligence with consciousness. And in order to prove that, he brings one of his employees, who doesn't know what he's going there for, uh, the employee is sort of the hero of the film, he brings his employee in and says, hey, uh, you're going to be testing this out, you're going to spend a couple days interacting with her, Ava, the robot, and you're going to determine if I've conquered the scientific step of creating artificial consciousness. So the movie is largely about the relationship between this employee and this female robot who he is separated by a pane of glass. Uh, You know, she's basically in this room that's sort of a glass prison cell. And the cool thing about it is that, you know, there's a lot of sort of examination as to how artificial intelligence works. The thing that I want you to pay attention to, because I'm sure most of you have not seen it, I'm not going to give away the ending, but I want you to pay attention to the romance because this movie is very cold and clinical. And what it is not is incredibly emotionally involving. The reason for that is because, you know, this character and this robot are going to have a rapport and that rapport leads the two of them into a talking romance. Remember, they they never touch, uh, you know, while she's separated from him. So, you know, you have this young guy sort of falling in love with this robot. And what this film is missing, it's about an hour and 48 minutes long. It should have been an hour and 58 minutes. And that extra 10 minutes should have just been dedicated to the two of these characters getting to know each other, getting to interact with each other and fall in love with each other. And it's just missing that. It happens as a device of the plot. You know that these two characters are going to fall in love, but they don't really. That's that's sort of my problem with it. You just don't buy that these two have something special together and that they should maybe be thinking about, well, what is our future together? That never happens. They don't even play at it. They don't even pretend. They don't joke about it. They don't say, oh, you know, well, we're going to have kids or how would that work? Or they just 
don't interact like a romantically involved couple would. And the result of that is that the film comes off cold. Uh, We're not particularly invested in anybody or even in what happens to this couple. And the ending, I won't even begin to approach it other than to say it's one of those endings you should definitely see and you should you should make it a priority to see this film. But it loses a lot of the impact that it could have had if the you had if we were able to buy that these two characters were actually in love. And you know, that is the importance. I talk in my book about telling a movie from a hero's point of view. You're not outside of a hero's story when you're writing it, or at least you shouldn't be. And that's why The Gift made $28 million, and that's why Ex Machina made $36 million worldwide. It's because both of them are cold. It's because watching The Gift, you're not quite sure who the hero is. So anyway, watch Ex Machina, and I'm going to go back and probably watch the scenes between these two characters and look at, well, what? how much is there? Because I just wasn't satisfied by the lack of emotional impact that the the end of the movie had. I would have liked to have been in a position where I was rooting for these characters and rooting for them to get together. And that is not something that occurred. And that's not sort of a just a general sense. That is a screenwriting problem that very easily could have been addressed. And the reason it wasn't addressed is because it never got into the studio system. And that's sort of the negative part of what ends up happening with a lot of independent films. It's that, wow, this script is great. Well, it's it's very good. It's not great. But there's no money to really spend to sort of take things to the next level. Now, of course, with studio purchases, it then becomes really difficult because nine times out of ten, it just gets developed into nowhere and the movie never happens. But in a case like this, God, I would have loved to see a polish where they moved the romance forward uh, and, and made that the center of the film as opposed to the really interesting philosophical debates that go on between the hero and the Oscar Isaac character. They really cover a lot of ground in those. They just don't cover a lot of ground when it comes to the two characters interacting and having sparks. And, you know, that's not... uh it's not brain surgery. It's really, really easy to do. All right, that is all for this week. You can buy my book, The Starter Screenplay, for Kindle, or you can buy a copy from me signed at officialscreenwriting.com. You can hire me to read your screenplay or two screenplays or three screenplays. You can hire me to look at your short film. You can hire me for a concept consultation. So if you haven't done that yet, if we have not spoken and you're listening to this podcast, seriously give some consideration consideration to that and if you really want to speak to me and there's or you really want me to read your script and there's some sort of financial thing holding you back if you're listening to minute 35 of my podcast if you haven't bailed by now shoot me an email and we'll get it figured out because i want to be helping the people who are listening i want to make sure that the work that you are doing pays off it takes just as much time to write a bad screenplay as it does to write a good screenplay so you might as well write a good screenplay That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.